Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome, everybody, to Always On EM. This is Vank Bellamconda. I'm again joined by my co-host, Dr. Alex Finch. We are thrilled, or maybe you'd say tachycardic, to have Dr. Nandan Anavaker one of the most amazing cardiac intensivists and teammates join us on the show. He has been a great help to me so many times in my career, even when I was a resident. I've always found him to be calm, insightful, very intelligent, and superbly empathic. He's a wonderful teacher, and some of our more consistent listeners may recall him introducing and supporting Dr. John Schupach on his Grand Rounds presentation recently. He serves as the director for the Cardiovascular Diseases Fellowship Program here at Mayo Clinic and is an all-around wonderful person. Nandan, thank you so much for being on the show. Would you mind starting off telling our listeners a little bit about your journey? Venk and, and Alex, too. Uh, thank you for the invitation and thanks for asking that question. I guess I'll start off by stating that I'm actually one of those who didn't get into medical school. <laughs> so I was told way back when that I didn't have what it, what it takes. Um, and it was the best thing that uh, actually ever happened to me because I learned that in life many, many times. People are going to tell you what you're not able to do or what you're not able to accomplish. And in my opinion, I think we actually owe these people a debt of gratitude because when we use those comments to drive us, then we can exceed our greatest expectations. And for me, I left home at the age of 17. Uh, I you know, went to medical school in Ireland, a country that treated me as a son. And then my journey brought me here to Mayo Clinic in the United States. And Mayo is just, you know, just a really special place because it really inspires one to be their best. And for me, uh, even to this day, I really feel blessed to be here and to be working with great colleagues and friends like the two of you. And I guess the, the rest is, as they say, is history. Speaking of history, uh, you're somebody who I also remember the the moment I met you. And I think a lot of our uh, trainees and staff feel that way. I remember um, I had activated our STEMI process and you immediately came to the bedside and made a, a really rare diagnosis at the bedside using bedside ultrasound. And the entire time you were doing this, you were explaining to me how you did it how you were getting the views that you got and taught me so that I could carry that knowledge forward as well. And I noticed you you didn't mention when you were discussing your journey, an incredibly exciting thing, which is that you were uh, just elected the Mayo Fellows Association Teacher of the Year. And this is your second year. Uh, something else I note about you is you're always humble in your teaching. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Is it okay if I, if I set a clinical scene so you can help educate us today? Oh, absolutely. Please do. So the, the thing that uh, we are interested in learning from you about today is more about wide complex tachycardias. And this is something that I feel in emergency medicine practice only occurs after 3 a.m. when you're single coverage in a, in a rural practice or something like that. And so these are the calls that you're getting uh, as the cardiac intensivist uh, from, from our rural practice saying, can you help us? 
So the the scene I want to set is I'm I'm working. It's 3 a.m. in Albert Lee, and I have a patient show up, and the ECG is handed to me, and it's a, a wide complex tachycardia uh, that's regular. Um, and when when that happens to you, um, or you get the call from me, I wanted to talk through first steps. What what kinds of advice would you give to somebody dealing with this for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a great question because the the concept of wide complex tachycardia, it's unnerving for anyone, regardless of of your background, whether you're working in the emergency department, whether you're working in an outpatient clinic, or whether you're a, a cardiologist in the CICU. So I think to systematically approach that question, I always lay the landscape. Number one, is our patient hemodynamically stable or not? And if, if our patient has any signs of instability, we follow the ACLS algorithms to resuscitate, including early shock therapy to restore rhythm immediately in combination with concurrent antirhythmic therapy, including amiodarone or, or lidocaine. And this is predominantly in the resuscitative scenario. It's not that uncommon, however, that you actually have a patient who comes to you with a wide complex tachycardia and, and they are actually stable at talking to you. So if the patient is hemodynamically stable, I try to take a good full minute to get some more information about that situation. And for this, I become really dependent on the house staff uh, who are absolutely excellent. And whether it's the house staff down in the ED, if I'm interacting with them or up in the CCU, if this is happening up there. And so this is the type of information that we're looking for. Is there a history of ischemic heart disease? Is there a history of cardiomyopathy? Is there a report somewhere that the ejection fraction is low? Is there a possibility that we might not actually be dealing with VT at all? Has the patient been hospitalized before with anything similar? And I think a real obvious question is, does the patient have a device? And these are some of the initial superficial questions that we try to verify. If we end up concluding that the rhythm is ventricular tachycardia, then we have to make a first decision. This is the first sort of major therapeutic decision. Is this a patient that we want to try to use electrical maneuvers? Of the electrical maneuvers, we have to ask ourselves, do we use an electrical maneuver that requires a device that the patient already has, like anti-tachycardia pacing, or do we try cardioversion? If we do decide uh, to pursue an electrical maneuver, I always parallel that with a consideration of an antirhythmic uh, medication. Now, when it comes to choosing antirhythmic medications, especially in the space that you and I work in, and that's really an urgent sort of a situation, I try not to academicize things too much. Um, and I re usually stick to amiodarone or lidocaine. And those are the ones that I'm, I'm particularly familiar with. The one area where I'd probably have a preference of one over the other is if the VT is polymorphic, and I'm really concerned that there may be an ischemic substrate or an ischemic basis. And in that scenario, I'd probably prefer lidocaine because of its use dependence, pharmacodynamics, which makes it more effective for ischemic myocardium. Now, after we've sort of interacted with that patient and, and performed those initial actions, if you're able to settle that patient down, then we have to start to figure out what caused all of this? What caused our patient to present? Could there be an active ischemic substrate? And this may require consideration of revascularization strategies. Do we take our patient to the cath lab? 
could there be an electrolyte abnormality that needs to be attended to, the potassium, the magnesium in particular? Could there be an arrhythmic substrate imparted by a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? Could there be a toxin-mediated arrhythmia or some other drugs involved? And then finally, especially in the very young patients who present with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you've got to think about a genetic arrhythmia syndrome. So really, the, the above features are some of the considerations that we, we, we need to think about. And then really, the bottom line is, once we move deeper from that, I really need to call the electrophysiologist. And at Mayo, we are really fortunate that we have so many resources so that as we're resuscitating, and you know this well, we get our experts in play as well. So we call our heart rhythm services, and not necessarily to tell them they have to be at the bedside, but rather to give them enough notice that we may be dealing with a precarious situation. We hope that we can settle things down with the usual cocktails, but if things escalate, we might need their help. And even if things go well, if they are notified upstream, it gives them time to, number one, look at the ECG and contemplate nuances that I might not have thought of. It also gets them to maybe clinch a diagnosis. It may help them think about other tests we should do in the CCU, for example, continuous 12-lead halter monitoring that might help localize arrhythmia and catch it if, if it occurs again. And so really, this engagement of the electrophysiologist is, in my opinion, crucial, and especially so in today's practice, because we're just so sophisticated that over the last decade, it's, it's no longer just zapping the patient and giving them antiarrhythmics. We're talking about ablation therapies, and nowadays, not even just ablation therapies, we're talking about protein beam ablation. Um, so really, their, their input these days is really up there as, as one of those triggers early on in the presentation. Now then, if somebody is taking care of a patient like this in rural Minnesota or whatnot, do you feel like there's a significant, uh, there's a high importance to getting an EP specialist on the phone, even if they're not locally available? Yeah. Or are most community cardiologists going to wear many hats in that scenario? Yeah, I think the reality is in the rural areas, uh, most of the community cardiologists will indeed wear many of the hats to make those decisions. I think, I think the good news is that the initial cocktail that we use that's pretty well systematized or following algorithmic approach tends to work to get the patient out of dodge, mm -hmm. at least for a period of time that we can then move them to a center that's either a tertiary or quaternary center. And we really depend upon that. I've had situations where I've taken calls from outside where we've been able to stabilize them. And my impression is, okay, the patient's going to do just fine. And then by the time they hit our door, they crash again. And then the next step is ECMO. So it, it really time is of the essence. And if we can initiate initial therapies as aggressively as possible and as expeditiously as possible, and then get them safely to a center that can afford advanced cares, that's, I, I think that's the way to go. It's a double-edged sword, right? Because we've advanced so much in what we're able to do. But as we've advanced, so has the expectations, right? The expectations from our patients have also increased. And when people come with multiple comorbidities, to be able to reach those expectations is getting tougher. And I do think that as we move forward, it will require more and more subspecialty expertise, even, even branching out into those rural practices. That makes sense. 
Also, you mentioned that your differential has five main categories with ischemic substrate, electrolyte abnormalities, arrhythmic substrate, toxin-mediated situations, and genetic syndromes. How often are you finding patients, we never figure out the ultimate cause? Yeah. You know, I think it's very common that when they come to me, for the most part, we're dealing with coronary artery disease. So, so that, you know, we're able to fix that and that's, that's relatively gratifying. It's not necessarily uncommon that patient will come with a ventricular arrhythmia. That's a little bit more exotic and our sort of ears sort of turn, you know, especially when it's a younger patient. Even in that scenario, even if I at the front line or my team at the front line is unable to say, well, this is a fascicular VT, for example, or an outflow tract VT, we're able to guess somewhat, but we always then end up going to the table of truth. That's the EP lab um, where they'll do the sophisticated tests and, and come up with it. And for the most part in those exotic cases, I would say, and this is a guesstimate, I would say probably maybe 75 to 85% of the time, we can sort of, our electrophysiologists are able to clinch a diagnosis and, and do something that's treatable. So in the very few cases, um, we're still left. It could be a VT, maybe it's a, you know, a special sort of SVT, and we're sort of left hanging a little bit. But I think that, that margin is getting smaller and smaller and smaller just with how much we're learning. And again, to emphasize how lucky we are being at Mayo, I mean, you know, we've got the greats like, you know, Sam Asavatham and, and Doug Packer, Tom Munger. You know, these are some of our senior EP faculty. Then our junior faculty or mid-career faculty are just, I mean, they're all brilliant as well. So it's just, I, I think we're in a very fortunate situation here at Mayo. I appreciate your discussion of the table of truth downstairs. We have the donut of truth in our CT scan. The other thing I really appreciate is you gave us a differential to walk through and, and reemphasized a key resuscitation principle to check, check our own pulse first, because you're right. You start to see that wide complex tachycardia and ACLS jumps into your mind. And, and if you're not careful, you're losing track of the differential and just trying to work through the algorithm. And so I always appreciate the reminder to slow down and work through the history that you've outlined. For our, our learners, can you share a little bit more about the difference between a fascicular VT and an outflow track VT? Yeah. So when, when you talk about arrhythmias in general, there are, there are several different mechanisms of arrhythmias. And we talk about for example, re-entry type arrhythmias, and they're usually associated with scar. So typically we'd see them in patients who have a history of MI or, or some other scar that could be the focus of that rhythm disturbance. Then the other major area is, could it be something like another mechanism called triggered activity? And, and these are caused by oscillations in the, uh, in the action potential that, that's normal in the heart. But these oscillations can trigger an, a ventricular arrhythmia event. So we look at these different mechanisms of arrhythmia and, and sometimes looking at the ECG itself can give a clue in terms of the underlying mechanism. And based on that, you can, you can think about the, the type of ventricular rhythm that we're dealing with. Some of the key ventricular arrhythmias like outflow tract arrhythmias or fascicular ventricular arrhythmias may occur without any overt sign of structural heart disease. And sometimes we see that in, in a younger sort of group. Typically, the outflow tract arrhythmias are going to look, and the fascicular VTs can look monomorphic on the electrocardiogram. And they'll have a certain pattern when you look at it 
for a for a seasoned electrophysiologist, and for most cardiologists out there, especially you know because we're all taking our board exams, we're sort of conditioned to learn these patterns. Should spark some query? Could this be one of those VTs associated with with no underlying structural abnormalities? So those are sort of some of the patterns that we look at. And the importance of that is, one, if you diagnose an outflow tract VT, they're pretty much curable with an ablation therapy. Fascicular VTs, again, they're very sensitive to calcium channel blockers. So if your patient is in the throes of a VT and you make that diagnosis confidently, it's very important to make the diagnosis confidently. Uh, you could abort that VT there and then with, with calcium channel blockers. Again, uh, the electrophysiologists will need to be involved downstream to think about uh, what else should we be thinking about? Is any further EP testing necessary? Are there any other therapeutic avenues that we need to consider? But they can be sort of very gratifying rhythm disorders to, to treat, especially for the electrophysiologists. And at the very least, very good fodder to teach our, our trainees as they're coming up the ranks. If we go back to our patient, we're, we're back in Albert Lee and perhaps I've given some amiodarone. I've given a shock. I'm trying to work down ACLS. At this point, the patient still has a pulse. What can I try next as I'm getting you on the phone? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, very interesting question because it's, it really is uh, the sequence that we see in real life, right? And I would argue that we continue in that resuscitative phase until we are out of that rhythm. And if we continue to have problems, then we enter a category of, of what we call as VT storm. And during these challenging situations, my first step is to continue the resuscitative efforts, including, very importantly, protection of the airways. And one of the particulars about VT that we've learned quite a lot about, well, I've particularly learned quite a lot about recently in my career, and there's been a lot of literature about this uh, over many years, is the role of the autonomic nervous system as a contributor to the problem, especially sympathetic nervous system activation. So with intubation and deep sedation, this can actually help the situation. It can sometimes help us overcome that storm. And as we keep our patients sedated and we try to Again, keep the antirhythmic agents on board. We may need to consider other strategies at the bedside. And some of those invasive strategies may include sympathetic ganglion block as a strategy. Um, and this indeed can be done at the bedside. Mayo, we, again, we're very fortunate that we have a skilled uh, set of specialists who can come at any time of day. Uh, obviously, as we're preparing for these type of potential interventions, we should really be also talking upstream to our mechanical circuitry support specialists so that we can ascertain whether our patient would or should be considered for escalation of support. For example, at one extreme, we would need to think about ECMO. I think it's important to emphasize uh, an important reality that during this type of resuscitation, we always do things in parallel, meaning that we would delegate team members to be on the phone with several important stakeholders. The most important stakeholder is the family members who know the patient the best to ensure that we are really working within the best interest and wishes of the patient. That's number one. Number two, our electrophysiologist, to afford them time to study the rhythm, the evolution of the acute disease, and so that we can also develop an action plan beyond antirhythmic therapies to include ablation therapies. And sometimes ablation therapies themselves need to be done urgently. And especially if you think about mechanical circuitry support, the ablation therapy could be supported 
by those circuitry devices. Then finally, those members of our advanced circuitry support team for consideration of different circuitry support strategies, especially if we feel that our patient is a candidate for such therapies, either as a bridge to ablation or potentially even as a bridge to transplant in the context of advanced cardiomyopathy or refractory ventricular arrhythmias, despite reaching the ceiling of therapeutic options. I'm really interested in the concept of intubation and deep sedation to facilitate termination of this rhythm. When you're thinking about the medications that you're using, for example, ketamine is a favorite in the emergency department, but I I imagine it, it might cause you some problems here by increasing your sympathetic surge, which is a side effect that we're often seeking to avoid hypotension. Are you selecting something like midazolam or propofol for your induction agent? Uh, How are you getting the maximum benefit here? Yeah, no, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, we we would really you know use the benzodiazepines and propofol, uh, you know, because it's so rapid onset. And and obviously, you know, it is it is a dicey situation because if we are really dealing with hemodynamic instability, there will be a point in time when we're going to reach hypotension, right? And that'll be a problem. And then we're starting to slap on vasopressor agents as well. So so all of this is. I think it's important for all our listeners to understand that the situation we're, we're in is very fluid and it changes really on a, on a minute-to-minute timescale. And you're really, if I can be frank and honest, <laughs> during all of this, I'm, I'm usually whispering a prayer under my breath that please work, you know, because uh, although we, we ascribe a lot of science to what we do, there is a lot of judgment, which makes this a lot of it being an art as well. I'm usually saying a lot of prayers at this point as well. (laughs) I've had the opportunity, I'm going to use the word opportunity, to perform two sympathetic ganglion blocks. One worked, one did not. I'm really curious what your experience with that is. Yeah. So in the CCU, we've, we've seen this being used not uncommonly. And I've seen good results with it. And typically, however, by the time a patient has had the sympathetic block, They've been on intravenous antirhythmic agents. They've been loaded with amiodarone and lidocaine. Sometimes they've already come back from a VT ablation. And so whether it's all the block or whether it's the combination of all of these therapeutic strategies that have just cooled everything down, difficult for me to say, looking at it from the CCU perspective. So having said that, I'd be interested to see what you felt when you performed the block down there. I mean, obviously, it's going to take a bit of time for it to take effect, but we've been seeing some good results and more so than not. That's really wonderful to hear. I don't feel like I know it well enough to say that I, I can judge with just two attempts. It's good to hear that the results have been so favorable up there. You know, I think about, for example, epilepsy, and the longer somebody has been seizing, the more difficult yeah. it can be to, to break it. It sounds like in this case, there's still great success in these interventions, even after they've been in refractory VT storm for a while. Yeah. When you talk about mechanical circulatory support options, yes. can you be more specific about what yeah. you're talking about? I, I guess one end of the spectrum, the extreme end is ECMO, where we take over complete circulatory support. And that, you know, we take the heart out of the picture in that situation. And that's something that probably going to be most significant or relevant uh, when we're dealing with a rhythm disorder, right? Because, you know, if the heart is still in the circuit, we're still going to be left with the 
you know, manifestations of, of the rhythm disorder on the circulation. And typically having the patient on ECMO, I think it buys us time. Obviously, number one, if, if the patient is candidate for it, we've got to make that uh, decision from the get-go. If they have other you know, major comorbidities, we have to also be truthful that VT is a terminal rhythm, right? Uh, it means there must be something else going on with the body, and we have to confront that reality for many of our patients. But putting all of that aside, if our patient is a candidate and we think we need some urgent control of the situation, ECMO affords us that luxury. When we talk about other mechanical circulatory supports at the very other end of the spectrum, we have our balloon pumps. And, and you guys are familiar with that because uh, many of our patients who come in with you know, a, a acute MI and we go to the cath lab, we might need to support them through cardiogenic shock with, with a balloon pump. And, and sometimes that's all we need. Then in between, there are different grades of circulatory support. So for example, the impeller device, which provides some more cardiac output, usually placed in the cath lab to either support high-risk coronary interventions or structural interventions, or to help support somebody after a massive MI and, and they're in cardiogenic shock. And sometimes some of these support devices, especially the balloon pumps, the auxiliary place balloon pumps for our patients waiting a waiting transplant for a more extended period of time in the CCU. I feel in some ways that I almost have a better grasp of ECMO because that actually gets done in the ED. I see it happening. An impella and particularly a balloon pump, although they seem to be used more commonly, my grasp isn't as complete because those are happening upstairs. Could you tell me a little bit more about how, how exactly the balloon pump is helping my yeah. patient who goes up and, and uh, maybe has a stent placed and, yeah. and comes out with a balloon pump. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, if you look at the data and if all we do is sit at our desk and look at data, you would say there probably isn't too much that a balloon pump is necessarily doing because it doesn't affect outcomes as much. That's what the data would show. Anecdotally, I think that these type of devices have a role in the management of our patients. The most common scenario for me is really in the patient that has presented with a large MI and they're in cardiogenic shock, especially if their left ventricle and diastolic pressures are very high. I personally feel that the balloon pump helps offload the heart and it facilitates our medical management in the CCU, which is really driven at reducing congestion with diuretic therapy and then allowing us to offload or reduce the afterload on the heart as well. Sometimes, again, not too uncommon, thankfully, much less common than two or three decades ago, we see uh, mechanical complications of MI, VSD or acute uh, mitral regurgitation. And again, the balloon pump can help sort of stabilize a patient until we can get them to definitive uh, surgical intervention for those sorts of complications as well. Our surgeons tend to really like the balloon pumps when they're trying to take care of or get patients who are very high risk for cabbage. And just prior to getting that cabbage, getting that balloon pump in, so it just gets a little bit more medicines on board so we can get them as fit as possible to make the chance of perioperative complications as low as possible. So that's, that's the, the third scenario where we would commonly see a balloon pump. And then, then the final area is, as I mentioned previously, is some of our more extended patients who stay for an extended period of time who are waiting for a transplant and they need that extra support 
on top of the inotropic agents they're already receiving. To really break it down for all of our learners and for me, frankly. So a balloon pump is a balloon in the aorta and and I believe the gas is helium. Is that right? And, yes. And so the helium is going in and the balloon blows up during diastole. Correct. And am I correct in understanding that basically we're trying to have some back pressure to fill the coronaries yep. and then the balloon sucks down and decreases afterload? Is that what's happening? Yeah, I really couldn't have said it any better. So you're exactly right. The balloon pump, it's in the aorta and it's a balloon and it inflates and deflates. And as you said, it inflates in diastole. And in, in so doing, we think that it helps coronary perfusion. And then what it does is when it deflates, it helps sort of suck blood from the heart out into the peripheries. So it, it helps the afterload condition of the circulation as well in, in that respect. Caveats, the, the two real major contraindications is, remember, because it's inflating in diastole, you don't want to have this in somebody who has aortic regurgitation because you can make that a lot worse. And again, because this is a device that's going up in the aorta, if there's a dissection, this is something you want to avoid if, if dissection is, is something that's on the differential diagnosis as well. But I couldn't have explained the, the actual mechanism any better than what you have. The final caveat is that we trigger it based on the ECG. So sometimes when it doesn't seem to work as well, it could be just because the patient is very tachycardic and, and, and that can be a problem. Shifting gears very slightly here, there's been a lot of discussion about the use of beta blockers at certain times in the care. And at the same time, when they don't have a pulse, we're giving a lot of epi. Yeah. It seems counterintuitive. What are your thoughts on beta blockade in wide complex tachycardias and when they're a good idea? And is this a situation where esmolol might be a better fit or something longer acting like metoprolol? Yep. Uh, wonderful. I, I think that's a really very interesting and insightful question. And I think the idea behind the use of beta blockers really supports the paradigm of the heightened sense of sympathetic nervous system activity that may be perpetuating the situation. So of course, when our patient is in the throes of ventricular arrhythmias and we are actively resuscitating our patient, um, then my thoughts are, we step back and we have faith in the ACLS process because the primary goal there is maintain life. And if we ever get to the point where we achieve hemodynamic stability, then indeed it is appropriate to discuss other measures that may sort of mitigate the risk of further ventricular arrhythmias down the line. And so it's important to know that here, the role of beta blockers is not necessarily as an antiarrhythmic per se in the, in the purest sense, but rather to help dampen down the fire of the sympathetic nervous system activation. And the point that you brought about Esmolol was fantastic because if the patient is only initially stabilized, this is really not the time to start a long-acting oral agent because you don't know how they're going to, to react. And Esmolol is just so short-acting that if it doesn't work well, you just switch it off and you're good uh, and you can try something else. So indeed, I, that's exactly what I follow, Venk. Um, I, I, I would start Esmolol and see how they do with that for 24 to 48 hours or so. And if they remain stable, if our telemetry doesn't show anything malignant or worrisome or concerning, then we think about the transition to a more practical oral regimen, which may include metoprolol at that time. 
you had brought up a couple of other pharmacotherapies, and I want to know when you would pull the trigger on those, so to speak. So, so maybe you pick amio, or maybe you pick lido, and then you mentioned up in the cardiac ICU, it may be that they're on both. When would you decide to layer on the other agent in this yeah. circumstance? Yeah. Um, so, so most of the time, if I'm being honest about things, we're able to get out of real harm's way uh, with, with amiodarone and lidocaine. They, they have been and, and remain the mainstay of therapies for patients who come with malignant ventricular arrhythmias. Obviously, there will be times when we need to think about other agents. The antiarrhythmic drugs, they're sort of two-edged sword, right? Because they are antiarrhythmics. They work by influencing the flux of ions at the cell membrane level. And by doing so, we alter the action potential, right? So although they're antirhythmic, on one end of the spectrum, they can they have the potential to be prorhythmic. And so whenever we think about other agents, other agents in the antirhythmic sort of group of drugs like procainamide and things like that, we have to balance their prorhythmic tendencies as well as their adverse effects and their other drug interactions. This is where I think humility is important. And I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, after amiodarone and lidocaine, even if I have a next choice that I want to go to, I, I always run it by my sort of electrophysiology colleague, because for me, it's really a five-digit call to call them and ask the question. And I feel that way I keep my patient the safest, right? I'm not, I'm not going to guess. I mean, I'm not going to use a guess on, on my patient's life. Um, and so those secondary agents, even if I have an idea in my, in my mind in terms of what I want to use, for example, if, if I think this is, say, fascicular VT, we brought that up earlier in the discussion, and I said, well, I want to use verapamil. I want to make sure that I'm not stroking my ego to prove that I'm correct with the diagnosis. I'd rather go over the ECG in detail with the electrophysiologist and say, hey, what do you think about this? Should we go with a more tailored approach or am I missing something? I think that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, when the patient continues to get worse, because it's after 3 a.m. and our patient's only going to get worse in Albertly, <laughs> sometimes what we're struggling with is we don't have the, the capability for mechanical circulatory support. And so we're, we're continuing to think through some salvage type therapies. Are there any other things in your bag of tricks that you might advise at that point? I, I guess the, the first thing is the type of VT. Is this monomorphic? Is this polymorphic? And really, if a patient is in VT storm, this we can't stabilize if we can't get them to those endpoints that makes them safe for transfer. This is really when we do need to get our electrophysiologists on the same phone call to think about what else we can do. Now, if this is polymorphic VT, I always say, just give them magnesium. It's not going to hurt them anyway. We're down that line. You know, it, it would have been some time when, when things are a little bit refractory. I review and re-review any objective data that might be available and see if there's anything actionable there, as simple as electrolytes. If we have moments where they're out of VT, and we look at that and we see, for example, that the, the QT looks very prolonged or, or there's something else in the history that's striking, some drug use or, or some other toxin that we're thinking about. Then we have to think about, would our patient in sinus rhythm be better off at a higher rate to mitigate further events? So these are the sorts of things that we're thinking about. The emphasis is if, if we're really 
in that spiral, we have to figure a way to get them out. Sometimes it might mean sending a team out there to get uh, the patient stabilized with our equipment so that then we can transfer them here. I agree with all those points. And I think there's a, a lot there. I would love to hear more about patients with prolonged QT. But before we get there, what are your thoughts on something like dual sequential defibrillation? It's something that I found myself having to do. I, I've done it only one time, but wanted to pick your brain on that. So what I appreciate most about the emergency department practice here at Mayo is that there is an early activation of resources, and that gives our, all our patients the best possible chance. And to that point, my practice, as you've sort of alluded to, is whenever you guys call me or my fellow, we, we both tend to come down there because I think it's important to be as close to the resuscitative efforts as possible so that it is no longer a phone conversation, uh, but rather a face-to-face -face discussion about what our next step should be. And this also allows me specifically to get a good look at the patient because that eyeball test, I really believe in that. I think it's a powerful predictor of, of a patient's outcome. Also being down there side by side with you guys, I think it provides an efficient synthesis of information, which then allows the most appropriate steps to be taken. We, we talked about considering ECMO and other mechanically, mechanical circuitry support devices. If we're thinking about that, that stage, we have to have an exit strategy. Will it so serve as a uh, bridge to ablation? That means we have to get other players on the line as well. And then before we even get to the point of contemplation of next steps, it's so important to see or enumerate the comorbidities of, of the patient. Now, with regard to the specific question regarding the role of dual sequential defibrillation, I personally think indeed it should be considered in the context of refractory, hemodynamically unstable ventricular arrhythmia. And that's really defined as that condition where the arrhythmia persists after three or more defibrillation attempts. Now, an unfortunate truth is the more attempts at defibrillation that's unsuccessful, really the less chance we have of salvaging the situation, of, of getting our patient to survival. And that's an unfortunate fact of the biology of, of what makes us human. When we're talking about dual sequential shocks, a distinction needs to be made between simultaneous or sequential uh, defibrillation. And that distinction is really based on the timing of shock delivery. One is really exactly on top of each other, no time interval. And the other, there is a time interval between, between the shocks. Now, looking at the data, off the bat, I'm going to state, I don't think it'll be very easy to prove efficacy in terms of outcomes. Because again, by definition, these patients are less likely to survive because of the refractory nature of the ventricular arrhythmias. However, there are several observational and retrospective studies that would support improved outcomes for this therapy. I would support its use in the context of the fact that we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? If you know something may have efficacy and you don't have anything else to offer and we're at the ceiling of what we have to offer, I think it's very hard to hold back. And I think, as I said, it'd be very challenging to prospectively study this. You know, I'm sure there's some bright spark out there uh, who'll figure that one out. And I'm really looking forward to, to when that manifests and maybe when it makes a more robust stance in our resuscitation algorithms. In my experience, I've, I've seen it only once used. 
And again, it's, it's difficult for me to say whether it actually worked or not, because by the time we used it, we had already intubated and sedated and the patient was on amio and it's tough to prove efficacy. And for our listeners out there who might not be familiar, Nandan, please correct me if anything doesn't sound right. But what we're talking about is placing two sets of pads onto the patient. And there isn't, isn't a textbook for how to do it, but perhaps uh, anterior and lateral and then anterior posterior, and then perhaps having two separate zoles set up. And at our shot, we're using, you know, biphasic. And so setting them both uh, as high as you can go, 200. And then you're either trying to push the button at the same time yeah. uh, or one followed by an indeterminate amount of time, but one, and then sequentially pushing the next button. Does that accurately summarize that's, the process? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And sorry that I, I didn't map that out, but but you're right. You're basically, instead of having one setup, you have two setups. You you try to change the vector a little bit with the second setup. And the hope is that with the combination, and, and to be honest, it's, it's, it's mostly going to be sequential, right? There's always going to be a bit of a time interval, but the hope is that this strategy will increase the chance of returning a stable rhythm. As with all resuscitative techniques that are uncommon, there's the procedure and then a lot of the emotions. It's an odd thing to be putting putting multiple pads on the patient and certainly trying to communicate to your team exactly what's going on when you're doing that. Yeah, but it also, I guess it, it points to the fact, right, that we really, in those sorts of situations, we really are between a, a rock and a hard place, right? And to your guys' sort of credit, when, when I've seen this, and the, the only time I've seen it was was when I came down to the ED, it was, it was a really challenging individual with congenital heart disease and refractorythmias. In fact, uh, that patient was due to come in for an ablation, I think a week later, but unfortunately, developed these arrhythmias before that time. And when you're dealing with a younger patient, we're, we're human beings, right? I mean, we get distressed every time we lose a patient, whether it's in the ED, whether it's in the ICU. It's something that we can't switch off when we go home after a shift. We always are trying to have an outcome where the patients survive, right? We are trying everything. And when an idea comes up, can we do something, even if objectively you're the backseat driver and you look at the situation from outside and say, it's not going to work. When you're in the moment and you're looking after that patient, it's very difficult to criticize not pursuing that, that line of therapy. Nandan, if we return to the resuscitation room, and again, considering hypotensive or refractory patients, is there a particular presser that you reach for? Yeah. You know, the simple answer is to use whatever works, right? And I think when, when we start resuscitation, we, we go to epinephrine, right, first. And, and I, th I think that's, we should follow that. And I, I think that's important for two reasons. One is because in the resuscitative effort, it really defines an organized chaos. It's really, it, it can either be an orchestra that's in harmony, or it could be an attempt at an orchestra where everyone is playing their own tune. And if we start doing things where everyone plays their own tune, you have one cardiologist who comes in and says, no, I want norepi. And you have another cardiologist that comes in and says, no, start dobutamine because of this. Then there's disharmony. And I think that this leads to confusion. With confusion, there then leads to lack of confidence of the care team. As leaders in resuscitation, we have to be the embodiment of confidence, right? We need the rest of the team to be confident in the decisions that are being 
made in that room where a lot of things are happening at the same time. But the first presser, I always stick with what's in the ACES epinephrine. When you're adding on, my next is really is norepi. And then on top of that, we, it's really two other choices. It's, it's dopamine or, or dobutamine. When we're talking about the heart, and we, if we know that the ejection fraction is already low because we've, we've learned about the patient or the patient has some ischemic uh, problems, I try to avoid phenylephrine just because it just purely increases the afterload and, and it could just make blunts the cardiac performance. Having said that, if we're sort of at the end of it and we need a perfusion pressure, then I say all bets are off and, and we do anything we need to do at that moment to maintain the vital signs. Again, I, I try not to academicize things because if you ask me what, what's the definition of science, I, I would say the definition of science is our attempt to understand cause and effect. And if we think about cause and effect, for every effect, for any observation, there's going to be a number of causes. And of those number of causes, there are going to be some that we can see and we can modify. There are some that we can see that we can't modify, but then by God, there are going to be innumerable that we just cannot see. And that's our major blind spot. Understanding the goal, goal is to maintain vital signs. The goal is to resolve the rhythm issue. Once we've achieved those goals, then we can walk back and then talk academically about the situation over a cup of coffee. In the storm, I think, I think we just got to do what's necessary. Nandan, thank you so much for articulating that. I think it resonates with me and probably many of our listeners, that sometimes we can get too into the weeds and make things more difficult for ourselves. I want to take a moment to summarize what I've heard, if that's okay. And Please. Of course, feel free to interrupt or add anything you feel is important. Assuming that we have a patient who is in stable VT, take a minute, get more information. Once we conclude that it is VT, we have to make a decision, electrical maneuvers or cardioversion, amiodarone or lidocaine. And you tend to prefer lidocaine for ischemia, where we think there's a lot more likelihood of ischemia, or if there's right. polymorphic VT. Correct. And assuming they're still not improving after these, these maneuvers, both electricity and medication, then we're considering them as VT storm. And Correct. we're all the while keeping our differential in our minds of ischemia, electrolyte problems, arrhythmic substrates, toxins, genetic syndromes. And we would like to, as early as possible, or it makes sense to engage the EP specialist or whoever is our next specialist in that community for this patient. That's absolutely correct. And assuming things are still not improving, we have some other adjuncts we can consider like stellate ganglion blocks, mechanical circulatory support, like the balloon pump or ECMO. And if we have tried multiple shocks and it's still not better, then we're considering that refractory unstable VT, a can that patient is a candidate then for dual sequential defibrillation. Correct. I, I would probably put the dual sequential defibrillation a little bit higher up because we'll be doing that as we're talking to our folks from you know, our ECMO service, because they'll be saying, what else have we been trying to do? Because we're always trying to get them out of that rhythm. So we're having all of those discussions in parallel. Absolutely correct. That makes sense. And then along the way, if we need pressors, we're thinking epinephrine first line, norepinephrine kind of second, 
dobutamine, dopamine also there, and trying to hold off on using phenylephrine unless it's in the most dire of circumstances. And at some point, if we get any kind of initial stabilization, potentially considering esmolol as a test the water for beta blockers and see if it makes better, it makes the situation better. Correct. I would totally agree. And by the time we're considering esmolol, my hope would be that they're already on the CCU by that by that time. I think that's an emotion we share. We want them to be in the CCU at that point. <laughs> yeah. <as well. laughs> yep, 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 yep. None, let's go back to the basics. Alex and I consider you an EKG expert. Frequently, he and I and other emergency physicians are debating whether we are seeing SVT with an aberrancy or VT, etc. How do you approach this? Yep, absolutely. So the question is, I have an electrocardiogram that shows a wide complex tachycardia. The QRS is wide and, and we've got a tachycardia. And I'm not sure, is it VT or could this be an SVT? Um, the easiest is when there is irregularity to it because VT for most part is going to be like clockwork. It's going to should be clockwork regularity. Sometimes when, when, when the tachycardia is just so fast, it's going to be tough to say. But if you see irregularity and if it's irregularly irregular, most likely it's probably going to be AFib with aberrancy. Now, having said that, life is not going to be that straightforward and fair to us. So therefore, my approach is you know, to use the algorithms that, that we, we know of. I think the simplest is look at a prior electrocardiogram of that patient when they're in sinus rhythm, if that's available to you, okay? And if that's available to you, uh, you make a comparison between that and then the wide complex tachycardia, okay? The one lead that has saved me a lot is AVR because AVR is sort of at the right shoulder, right? And, and typically a rhythm that is going from atrium to so the ventricles will be going away from AVR. But in your tachycardia ECG, if you see a major positive wave in AVR or the polarity has changed in AVR, that should make a suspicion a little bit higher for ventricular rhythm of ventricular tachycardia. Then obviously, we look at other criteria uh, that we sort of we try to go through mentally step by step, uh, look for concordance, precordial concordance uh, of the the, the QRS, we look at the width of the QRS complexes, especially if it's super wide, that sort of tends to make us think it's, it's more VT rather than SVT, bizarre sort of complexes. And then a little bit more subtle nuances like, you know, intervals between the initial sort of deflection and the QRS. Um, but those subtleties are, are, are tough. And sometimes finding the prototype finding or pathognomonic finding like the AV dissociation or the capture beats, Sometimes you see them, sometimes you don't, and, and it's tough. So we do our best by looking at the ECG. But then after that, I think if you're a betting person, you want to see how you can stack the odds in favor of one diagnosis or the other. And, and historically, if there is any history of coronary artery disease, if there is any history of known cardiomyopathy or known prior events of ventricular tachyarrhythmias, then that just ups the ante that this is more likely to be VT. If yes is to any of those questions, I personally assume that it's VT until proven otherwise. And then I'll wait for the electrophysiologist to slap my wrist the next day where they prove to me that it's not 
and and that's happened. It's it's happened where I've been shown no, this is this was actually SVT with a barren C. It's a pure SVT. But it's better to have the patient alive and safe, and me be wrong, uh, than to take the risk in the middle of the night, which we don't want to do, and then find out the patient had a bad outcome. And so I think the key message here is, is first be safe with the patient. It's, it's not as important whether you're right or wrong about the diagnosis, but it's more important that we take steps to cover the worst possible case scenario. And, and, and for me, it's, it's, you've got to prove that it's not VT. The onus is on us to prove that it's not before closing the door on that. You're, you're preaching to the choir. For us, it's always the worst first diagnosis. So glad we see eye to eye on that. Yes. But speaking of the worst things happening, I wanted to talk about another patient who's now in our waiting room and they've been vomiting for a few days. And, and I didn't see this because uh, I was ordering some things in the waiting room, but they were also on some azithromycin for COPD exacerbation. And I think we can all see where this is going. I gave them a whopping dose of Zofran. And now I'm starting to see runs of PVCs, which is another term I love. Uh, and please clarify what exactly defines a run of PVCs for you, because I think that a run of PVCs means I, I don't want to look at VTAC right now. <laughs> um, so I'm seeing runs of PVCs and suddenly I get called to the room. As a subset of wide complex tachycardia, after we, after we define run of PVCs, how are we approaching a patient with a, a long QTC torsades type presentation? How is that going to be different than yep. our first patient? Yep. So I would agree with the definition of runs of PVC. It's just translated to, I don't want to call it VT. <laughs> um, so <laughs> um, yes, but basically as long as you have a beat in between, that's not bizarre or scary looking, we can, we can call it that. The scenario that you've brought up, it's looking at long, long QT as a trigger uh, for ventricular arrhythmias. And, and this is a different mechanism of arrhythmia, of arrhythmogenesis. The most likely mechanism of, of VT that, that we typically see in, in our practices is SCAR-related, and that's a reentry mechanism. When it's a Related to the QT interval, it's it's relating to the a repolarization abnormality, and in this scenario, most typically it's called these early after depolarization. So we're still on that action potential, but the action potential is a little bit more ticklish on that repolarization limb, and if you tickle it enough, it'll give rise to a bad PVC, which then can lead to a run of polymorphic VT, and then that's what we see. It can be triggered by a lot of different causes. It can be triggered by patients who are on, uh, sometimes on uh, medis medicines for their psychiatric illnesses. It can be for patients who may have an underlying substrate that's unmasked when they're being treated with antibiotics for a, for a pneumonia, or you know, the, or they re receive uh, anti-nausea medicines. Um, on top of other medicines that might be uh, prolonged QT. And, and just for the listeners out there, there is, you can go onto the internet. There's a website that lists medications that can uh, prolong the QT. Um, and it's a, of a special uh, significance to those who, who may have uh, long QT syndrome for, for medicines to avoid or drug interaction you want to avoid. Now, the interesting thing with uh, this group of disorders is you're really sort of held at washing out the triggers, right? One of the things we can artificially do uh, once they're in sinus rhythm 
is try to reduce that QT interval artificially by increasing the heart rate, right? Because the QT interval, you know, tends to shorten up the faster the heart rate is. And one of the medical therapies that we can use is isoproteinol. Sometimes, because we've seen efficacy, um, we actually pace the patient. It might require transvenous pacing, and we keep them at a higher heart rate, somewhere between 90 to 110 beats a minute. And we just have to wait, especially if it's a medication-related issue, for the medicines to wash out. And I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this. I, I remember a period of time now, maybe two or three years ago, where we saw a lot of young kids where they've had taken a lot of loperamide, and then they come in with long QT and, and ventricular arrhythmias. So it's, it's important to do a lot of historical digging. And, and then once we've excluded secondary causes, we are, we are left thinking about, you know, could there be a genetic problem, a channelopathy? Again, I, and I've said this, this is probably the third or fourth time how blessed we are to be at Mayo because we actually have a, a world great, somebody like, you know, Dr. Mike Ackerman, who is a channelopathy expert, who is a phone call away. And once we get these patients stabilized, we don't really complete the evaluation or the therapeutic part of things, but we have to at least get them in the door to our geneticists and electrophysiologists who then pave the way in terms of what's next and the therapeutics involved. And the channelopathies, you know, there's, there's different groups of antiarrhythmic agents that work maybe more specifically. Um, so if some of these channelopathies may, may work better with or may be treated better with, for example, beta blockers or quinidine or flecainide. But that really does require not only an expert opinion, it requires really an expert opinion at a national or international level. And, and there are a handful of these folks. And thankfully, a couple of them are, are, are here at Mayo. So it, it just uh, makes it a little bit, e thankfully, makes it easier for us um, to, to get our patients moving in the right direction from that standpoint. A couple of questions that I would have as I'm trying to resuscitate this patient that I wanted to get your opinion on. Obviously, I, I'm trying to deliver electricity at this point to see if I can get them back into a sinus rhythm. But if I'm going to reach for a medication to, to help prime the pump, again, I'm faced with lidocaine and amiodarone. And, and I've read that amio may prolong the QTC further. And so I'd love to hear what medication you might uh, reach for in addition to something like magnesium. And yeah. then the second question I had is when I'm thinking about electrical therapies outside of synchronized cardioversion or defibrillation, and, and I'm at this point thinking through pacing, am I pacing the patient when they're in sinus outside of the, the VT or, or uh, and, and I apologize, torsades, or is this something I'm actually trying while they're in uh, torsades? Because I haven't had to do this myself and yeah. trying to think through technically how I, I would approach that. Yeah, perfect. So, so I, I might begin by answering that question first. So, so with, with torsades, you, you want to just cardiovert them and try to get them out of that. And then you, you look at the baseline ECG. Hopefully, you're able to cardiovert them. And that's when, if pacing becomes an option, that's when you want to pace them and they're in the sinus rhythm. You brought up the point about the antirhythmic drugs. It's, it's, it's really interesting, actually. 
because you're right, um, amiodarone mechanistically through its effects on the potassium channels will prolong the QT predictably. But what's interesting about it is, despite it prolonging the QT interval, um, it is not really been observed to exacerbate QT prolonged mechanism of VT. The reason that it's purported not to be associated with exacerbating those ventricular arrhythmias is because that it prolongs the QT essentially um, homogeneously throughout the myocardium, epicardium to, to, to endocardium. This is an important point because, because the, the action potential at the epicardium is fundamentally different in its appearance compared to the action potential at the endocardium. And the mid-myocardium is somewhat different as well. And so when you have a greater dispersion of that repolarization across the myocardium, and and I I could be wrong, but my understanding is that this is what what heightens the risk uh, with those QT prolonging drugs, including those antiarrhythmics that also prolong the QT, but which is not necessarily the case with amiodarone. I think in the ED, especially when you're seeing something like a polymorphic VT like torsades, you're going to shock them out first. And as you're doing that, hopefully me and my fellow are coming down. And as me and the fellow is coming down, we're also patching in with our electrophysiology consult service to let them know we've got something really, really interesting that we need help with. Then by the time we're down there, if we've got the patient cardioverted, again, you're pumping them full of magnesium. You're making sure the potassium is fine. You're going through the medical Sort of, sort of history, make sure there's no harmful medications on the list. You're looking at any other toxic sort of issues that might be going on. And then we're really at the stage of, do we need to pace them to a higher rate or not? That's sort of really the sequence of events that, that we get to. And by the time the, we're, we're thinking about pacing, that's when I'm praying, let those electrophysiologists be here like right now, you know? So that's, that's sort of my, my two cents on that. <laughs> I think a key takeaway is you never want to be the interesting case. You never want to be the one that that the consultant is saying, I have an interesting case for you. Yes, yes, absolutely. A follow-up question to that. So you mentioned magnesium, and this is a process that is a little bit different approach to electrolyte repletion, I think. Because for example, when I order magnesium in the ED, the order is written as a gram over an hour. But when I've been in this situation, we're, we're reaching for magnesium a little bit differently. Right. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think the, the key is uh, even before you check the, the blood level, you want to get it in, uh, you know, obviously, you know, as, as safely as possible. Um, so, you, so you go by that guideline. Most of these patients, as you know, but, you know as you're resuscitating them, uh, they'll end up with some form of central axis, whether it's IO or, or a central venous line. Um, and that, that makes administration of medications a little bit easier. But we really want to stabilize the membranes. And that's really the, the basis behind going ahead with that. And, and we know it's, it's not going to harm them. So regardless, even if you said the, the magnesium is you know, meeting the normal range, um, I'm going to say that's okay. We, we can still give it. It's not going to hurt as we're buying time. It's not an antiarrhythmic agent by itself. But we, we do feel that, that it helps with the membrane stabilization. I practice very similarly and am very free with giving magnesium because I think it can help with almost no downside. Also, I'm always reminded that 
around pregnancy, for example, in labor and delivery, they're giving lots of magnesium without any complications. Yeah. 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 The other, other medication to, to be careful of, just, just to remember um, in, in the older group, is digoxin. Sometimes, you see, digoxin can create all sorts of havoc, havoc from a rhythm standpoint. And it can cause a polymorphic VT as well. Um, it's sort of through a different mechanism, through delayed after depolarizations, but it can also cause a, a polymorphic VT. So always, if your patient is on digoxin, all of a sudden they've developed renal failure, you know, because they've been vomiting the last several days. Um, it's always good to get a dig level as well. If we get to the stage where we are overdrive pacing with either isoproteranol or transcutaneous transvenous pacing, Take us through the settings that you're putting on the control box for the machine. And would overdrive pacing also be an end strategy for wide complex tachycardias that are that we are emergently managing, not associated with prolonged QT? Yeah. Um, so in in my experience, um, the times we've used sort of the overdrive pacing, the times I've used it is in those who have already got a device. So they've already got a history of ventricular arrhythmias. And they might come in with a VT that's somewhat hemodynamically stable, and then we're able to, in a controlled manner, overdrive pace that or anti-tachycardia pace and get them out of that. And, and, and there's several steps. We can, we can do that sort of pacing sort of maneuver, um, but we may still end up cardioverting. I think it's difficult from the transcutaneous sort of standpoint. I, I, I don't have much experience in that. So I don't have a strong sentiment um, just because I, I haven't had to be in that situation. When we have had polymorphic VT and we've had to uh, uh, utilize pacing in that scenario, it's usually come secondarily after we've had some luck with isoproteranol. Then we've obtained access, we've got a wire, and then we, we pace our patient. More recently, because of the use of temporary permanent devices, which is placed by our electrophysiologists, these patients sometimes go straight from the ED to the EP lab where they can have these maneuvers taken care of right there and then, uh, which means they might have one of these devices placed en route to the CCU where we then manage them on telemetry, see how they go, wash out the inciting culprits, and then figure out the long-term antirhythmic strategy for these patients. I think one setting in particular that eludes me um, is the concept of sensing because most commonly when I'm placing a transvenous pacemaker or transcutaneous it's for a bradycardia that's so symptomatic that we're intervening at that point. And a lot of the EM textbooks, you know, say initially we're just setting the sensing to zero and getting them to the ICU. But in this case, I feel like I could get myself really into trouble by, by following that same process because the whole thing I'm trying to avoid is an R on T situation. Yeah. And so yeah. if I'm not, if I'm not sensing the beats and I'm just delivering that QRS, I could... Yeah get myself in trouble. Yeah, it's 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 tough and and you're right. The the most of the time in the in the emergency department setting we are uh, dealing with the bradyarrhythmias, you know, and that's when pacing makes sense, you know. I think in the situation where we're dealing with a polymorphic VT and we're worried about it being QT prolongation as the culprit. My approach uh, my, my first line is, okay, let's see if we can get some isoproteranol on board and then bring them up to the unit. 
and then by that time we can because you know we've we've got the grace of fluoroscopy and if we really if we want to put a temp perm our electrophysiology colleagues can take them directly to their lab and we can put that in a controlled environment you know we have all of the the necessary equipment and drugs uh, to do that in a in a controlled differentiated environment where the, you know whereas in the emergency department you're really catering to anyone that walks in the door with any problem right we, we we might have a more nuanced approach and so my my sort of sort of gestalt is hey we've made a diagnosis it's an interesting diagnosis we think the patient might do better with a high rate you know what let's start some isoprotenerol and let's Let's get him to a CCU, uh, him or her to a CCU, and then see whether we need to escalate that therapy. Now, I think we can all agree this fictitious shift has been really hard so far. Yeah. And we've been admitting a lot of patients to the cardiac ICU from RED. (laughs) The end of the shift is in sight, but one last patient is roomed. This is a patient with an implanted ICD pacemaker and reports that he has been shocked several times. Yeah. If we interrogate this device and find that it was an inappropriate shock, what steps would you work through at that point? I always see a magnet on the refrigerator in the ED, but frankly, we just don't use it very often. If I put the magnet on this ICD pacemaker, what happens? And if I take it off, am I going to mess things up? Good. So this is this is a really interesting question. And I think that the key here is that if you have someone that's come and interrogated the device and that professional has indicated that there's been inappropriate shocks, then I think the most efficient thing to do is to reprogram the device then and there. And, and that's not something that you necessarily have to do, but you work in collaboration with the device uh, nurse who will who's always working under the supervision of an electrophysiologist. I, I think that's really important to, to know and be aware of. Now, the role of, of the magnet is to try to keep things as simple as possible. So with the pacing device, this generally changes the pacing mode to an asynchronous mode. Um, with regard to the defibrillator function, uh, there can be some variations in what is achieved by the magnet, um, and this may vary according to device manufacturer. Therefore, the best thing really is once you've established inappropriateness of the shock based on device interrogation, then we need to reprogram. We need to reprogram the device, which means resetting when shock is delivered, and this may require changing the thresholds, and, and that can all be done right there at the bedside and in real time. That, that would be what I would advocate. And again, if, if you're having the interrogation done at that point as well, and if you're in a situation, you know, we have a patient who has, say, terminal disease, something else going on, and the decision is made, you know, the patient doesn't want any more therapies at all, then it can be switched off more reliably with the, devi- with the device nurse there with you. And if you find yourself in the opposite situation, the device is interrogated and you find that the patient has been having VT. Should I be putting pads on the patient? Should I be trying to more aggressively shock them? Yep. Uh, how should I approach that situation? Yep. So whether the patient has an AICD or not, I, I would always advocate putting pads on, on the patient simply, again, bef- because it alleviates the potential of confusion because confusion can lead to delay to therapy, right? Um, how I act subsequently is really going to be dictated by the context of the presentation and obviously the stability and urgency of therapies. Now, if the patient has a defibrillator, then the device should fire in the setting of a VT. And the device is set to give the most efficient strategy of defibrillation, the way they 
they put the can and the leads. It's meant to give the best um, shock therapy. So ideally, we'd want to use the device therapy. If the device is inappropriately not firing, um, then you've got the pads and I mean, you have to use the pads, right? Because you you have to get them out of out of that VT. Reasons why you could have bona fide VT and no shock delivered. Um, it could be because the device isn't working properly, or there may be a, a discrepancy in the programming. Sometimes the patients that you see with VT, they might be at VT at 120, and if the shock therapy or the zone of therapy is at a higher level, they might not be receiving shocks. But in that situation, it's also a good, good moment to take a step back and say, well, it's a slower VT. The patient is hemodynamically stable right now. I've got the device nurse here. CCU has come down. Could there be a strategy to try ATP or, or anti-tachycardia pacing? And then we can actually do this uh, right there and there together and see whether we can get them, get them out of it. And if we need to give them a shock through the device, we can do that there as well. I think it all comes back to the same concept that you described early on, checking your pulse first, uh, yeah. see the, the, uh, the ugly wide complex tachycardia and the patient clinically looks stable and pause and think through your differential and, and what you can do. Nandan, I just want to thank you so much for this incredible interview. I've learned so much and I've actually been taking notes yeah. for, for my next shift the entire time. We had a chance to talk through a bread and butter VT patient who shows up, but things get complicated and we have to try some salvage therapies uh, that Venk summarized. And then some, some other cases, if we know that it's a, a prolonged QT how we're going to approach that differently, and then the device patient getting appropriate or inappropriate shocks and how we're going to work through that. But I definitely feel better armed for my next shift because of our conversation today. Wonderful. Now, I, again, thank you for, for having me. Um, uh, to be honest, I'm always uh, in awe of what you guys have to deal with down there. It can be some major orthopedic trauma to a head bleed, rhythm issues. So it, it makes what I do look very minor. So compared to what, what, what care you guys deliver each and every day, 24 seven. And so I want to thank you for that. I really want to echo what Alex was saying. We look to your teams with such admiration as well all the time. And I was reflecting upon a tweet that you posted a few weeks ago, and I hope I don't embarrass you, but I think it's reflected in our conversation today for the listeners who don't follow him. He's He's wonderful. You should follow him. And I think you would match the way he is on Twitter is in fact, the way he is all the time. You can see he's incredibly empathic and just has such a balance about medicine and what we do. The tweet, if you might recall, you said, the truth is our vocation is but a dance with nature. We cannot conquer nature, nor should we try. We should try to harmonize with nature, care for our patients with effort lined with humility. And I think you've lived up to every word of that in every encounter I've had. And especially today, for those listening, you've been listening to Always on EM. We've been lucky to be able to, to be talking with Dr. Nandan Anavaker, who's one of our wonderful intensivists. Thank you so much for being on the show. Not at all. And uh, for the listeners out there, Venk started off saying that he, he used to learn a lot from me back when he's resident. The truth is we were residents together. So I learned a lot from him <laughs> when, uh, when I used to go down there as well. So 
it's always nice to have these reunions, you know, along a very long period of time. And it's, it's always a pleasure to see you, Venk. Likewise. And Alex, thank you so much. Um, again, it's, it's, it's great um, visiting with you and, and, and always working with you. It's, it's, it's always fun. Folks, we're really excited that you gave us your time and attention to learn from Nandan today. I hope it was very meaningful. Please reach out to us via email at alwaysonem at gmail.com, where you can get in touch with us through Twitter at alwaysonem. Certainly, our EM blog has more content that you might want to check out. That's emblog.mayo.edu. And until next month, we hope that you stay well and have a great time saving lives. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.